Hey there, this is Liz Lash, and you're listening to Entering the Bar, a podcast on life and the law. Us lawyers may have passed the bar, but at the end of the day, we often find ourselves entering the bar, not only to relax, but to fetch about clients, cases, and the like. What's it like to live life as a lawyer? That's what we're here to talk about. And since we're lawyers, here's your first disclaimer. We're not here to give you legal advice. And you're listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. And today we have on the show Jason Wool at Zwilgen. What a great name. Jason, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you. And thank you for being here. So, Jason, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about this wonderfully named law firm you work for and what you do? Sure. Uh, so I, I work for a, um, I guess you'd call it a boutique firm called Zwilgen. Uh, and we have, I think, like 27 lawyers now uh, in total with uh, offices in D.C., New York, and San Francisco. But we also have a few people in Chicago and Boston. Wow. So you uh, cover a lot of ground. We do. We do. Uh, so and, and what do you primarily do at Zwilgen? So Zwilgen is a, it's a boutique firm that focuses on um, I believe, as they would put it, the law of, of technology and the internet, which which really in practice means that we we mostly do, I'd say, about ninety to ninety five percent privacy and cybersecurity work. Right, and that's um, how you and I met, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> nice um, to be on the same side of the table. <laughs> yeah. Or of the podcast. Uh, you, were, you were good to negotiate with. <laughs> same, you were too. <laughs> <laughs> But then we also do a little bit, a bit of other stuff too. So we, um, maybe 95% was an overstatement, but we, we do, uh, we do some other pretty niche things, uh, at the firm, including fantasy sports law, which is something that we are potentially uniquely experienced at. And, uh, we also do things like we have an alternative data group. We do a lot of stuff with blockchain, you know, fintech. So we, we, anything that's technology related, we, sure. We have experience in. That's great. So are you going to get into New Jersey now? <laughs> I heard that there's sports betting starting. I'm, I'm certain that we will be pros on that, <laughs> on that law pretty soon if we're not already. I'm sure. I'm sure. So speaking of this area in cybersecurity, I know you're very proud of a recent article that you just published, which has a great name. <laughs> it's uh, such in, a mouthful. Oh, my goodness. I was like, cannot say this five times fast. Does the cryptographic hashing of passwords qualify for statutory breach notification safe harbor in the Journal of Law and Cyber Warfare? Wow. Yep. Yep. It's quite a title. I know. It's not, it's not my, my favorite uh, type of title. Uh, honestly, I like to go for really witty, um, like pun-based ones. If you look at the Zwilgen blog, you'll mm -hmm. see many titles that are very clearly thought of by me, including um, <laughs> when when Alabama passed its breach notification law, I came up with, at last, my Alabama breach notification has come. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was pretty proud of. I love it. I love it. Well, you're a witty guy, Jason. That's why, that's why I thought you'd be a great guest. <laughs> Thank you. Um, actually, I thought it was interesting because on your blog, and again, I am so impressed because you've like 32 publications listed on LinkedIn, um, <laughs> you know, that you did, you dropped a little bit of a note about 
these scientists who uh, inserted malware into DNA. And I was like, wow, talk about going viral. Like, you know, that's yeah. really interesting. That's pretty scary. Right? There's, there's been a, uh, recent advances in, in data storage and DNA because it's apparently very efficient. Uh, and I was having some fun thinking about literal viruses yeah. and viruses and things like that. It's like the, me- the metavirus, you know. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> All I remember about DNA is like sitting in college, like a giant lecture hall, taking a class and trying to remember what the strands were. It was like A, B, B, G, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> how the hell is that efficient? You know, but <laughs> apparently it is very efficient apparently because efficient. I guess, well, I, I don't know. It's, there, there's, an, there's an interesting article about it in terms of having four base pairs instead of just two. Hmm. And that's like why it's more efficient for um, for data storage. Oh, interesting. Now, could that influence? Like, I know you talked about, you know, the password hashing and you know, salt and pepper, and how easy it is to crack and safe harbor. I mean, you know, in the context of your article, do you think that could make it actually easier for hackers to hack things? Maybe we're getting into too much technology here, but. <laughs> Well, I just think it's it's too it's it's not we're not there yet with that mm. particular That's data true. storage with that media. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, from what I understand, mm-hmm. it involves you know like quite a lengthy process to even translate DNA back into binary, and and it's very experimental. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, certainly this whole area of cryptography is going to get very interesting in the next, you know, 20 years or 30 years or whatever it is, you know, we've got these quantum computers coming and quantum cryptography is supposedly something to, to, that's going to be very advanced and fast and that we should all be afraid of in terms (laughs) of uh, computers being able to crack passwords very, very quickly. So that is something on the horizon. I I think it's a little bit outside of my expertise, frankly, from a technological mm. perspective. But it is coming, as I understand it, and it is something that is going to be a game changer. Yeah. Quantum computing is coming. <laughs> yeah. Watch out. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you know, for people who might not know really much about, uh, you know, what is a password hash and, you know, why is it that maybe legislators didn't think about it when passing these breach notification statutes? Oh, I, th- I mean, first I should say, I think that some legislators did, ah, okay. um, but certainly others I, I don't think did. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically the key distinction between encryption mm-hmm. and hashing in yeah. my mind, and again, I'm, I'm not a technologist. Sure. Uh, I was an English major, so I'm oh. kind of, you know, <laughs> this is this is an English major's understanding uh-huh. of something technical. Uh-huh. But okay. one of the key differences is that encryption mm-hmm. is a bidirectional process. Um, mm. You take a key, you encrypt something, and then later on it can be uh, decrypted back into the plain text yeah. version. And uh, a hash is unlike encryption is, is a one-way process. It is meant to take something uh, of an arbitrary length, mm-hmm. say something like hat or uh, even something like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> Both of them would get turned into a hash of the same length. Yeah. Um, and um, it is not meant to be reversed. Uh, so they, they can be reversed. And that's through a process called cracking, which we can talk about. But hmm. fundamentally, the idea of a hash is to translate 
something of an arbitrary length, apply a cryptographic process to it, and then the output is something called a message digest, and that is the hash. And there are different hashing functions that are used, and they have different benefits uh, and detriments depending on the use case. Um, so, so for instance, hashes can be used for many different applications. Uh, they can be used in the forensic context, which maybe you're most familiar with, sure. um, to say, you know, if, uh, if you want to pull hashes of all of the files on a, on a computer and that way you kind of have a record of like what was on that computer. Mm-hmm. Um, you also will know if anything on the, any of those files are on the, on the, on the hashes that you have, if any of them change, the hash will then be different. Uh, if it's run again. So you can use them to check the integrity of data by comparing the two hashes. If they are the same, then nothing changed. If the hashes are different, then something must have changed, even theoretically a single uh, byte. So that's one application of them. And for that type of application, you really want a fast hash. You want something that's going to get the job done really quickly because the point is that you're doing it on, you're applying the hash to a bunch of different files and you want to just very quickly pull the hashes and have that record. Uh, it's not it's something that takes longer is going to be uh, less beneficial in that context. Hmm. In the case of a password, you want a uh, you actually want something that's called more expensive or that takes more time to create the hash. And the reason for that is that the the more expensive a hash function is, the um, the longer it will take an adversary who's trying to crack the password to um, to move through the different um, uh, guesses that they're making. So there's one popular way of trying to crack passwords that's called, or very historically popular, called uh, brute forcing, which is basically like, I've heard say, of you, say you've got, uh, it's most like, say you've got your four-digit iPhone password. Uh-huh. Uh, I think maybe now it's six, but, you know, there's only four digits there. And so brute forcing that would be like check, trying, Zero 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 one zero 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 two. Trying all options until you guess the password. Uh-huh. That's an example of brute force. And then, so if if someone's going to try to do that, you want to slow them down. Sure. Make it very difficult for them to make uh, guesses. Because the other thing that I talk a lot about in my article is that there's there's all these new technologies that enable password crackers to ver- to to try a huge volume of mm-hmm. passwords very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they use these things called graphical processing units. And they can string them together and they can guess in some cases, you know, like billions of guesses per second. Um, so the, the slower and more expensive a hash function is, the, the more you slow down an attacker in that way. Gotcha. So how does that relate to, and the topic of your article was safe harbor under breach notification. How did that relate to some of these safe harbor aspects of these laws? Yeah, sure. So there's now 50 states, all 50 states have Ooh. breach notification laws. All of them, to, as far as I know, have uh-huh. a, uh, this, what I, what I refer to in the article as a safe harbor provision, which says basically that if you, if there is a data breach, but the data is protected in certain ways that are, that are specified in the statute, then you don't have to notify. Most of the time, what they're really talking about either explicitly or implicitly is encryption. So if you mm-hmm. have, you know, used a, sound encryption algorithm mm-hmm. on, on uh, say, whatever personal information is subject to a data breach, your obligation to notify does not get triggered unless 
the attacker got the encryption key as well as the the, the encrypted data. Hmm. So just generally speaking, if they only got encrypted data, then there's no notification obligation. Uh-huh. Um, and so the thing that I kind of focused on and that got me thinking about this is that you know, when I wrote the article, there were, uh, by my count, eight states that had breach notification laws mm-hmm. that attached to or that would be triggered by uh, thefts of user credentials. Oh. Uh, so like a username and a password. Sure. And there was not in any, there were not any references in any of those statutes, however, uh, specific anywhere and specifically in the in the safe harbor provision mm-hmm. about hashing um, right. only either encryption or other terms that 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 were already used in those in, in those safe harbor provisions like redaction or mm-hmm. uh, things like that but there was no reference to to hashing and right. i think that probably from uh, a layperson's perspective encryption and hashing are are likely thought of as the same mm-hmm. and so you know it's possible that some legislators thought that for that type of data that the safe harbor would apply because you know if a company encrypts or if an organization i should say encrypts that passwords, then no notification obligation attaches. But the reality is that most companies that are protecting user credentials while stored uh, are using hashes. They're not encrypting them. Um, and so there's a there's a bit of a gap there. So the question That's that I kind of set out to answer is, you know, these, do these states not want Safe Harbor to be available for hashed user credentials? Mm-hmm. Did they want it to be available but not think it all the way through because it's just a technical issue that they that wasn't brought to their attention? Right. That's the type of thing that I was trying to, to tease apart. Ah, very interesting. Yeah, I, I wondered how you, you came up with that idea. But certainly for, you know, for me, having having worked in that area, it was you know, fascinating to read about and, you know, see the analysis because it, it, it is a bit of a difference. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I appreciate that you enjoyed reading it. <laughs> even with that, me, even that with that long title, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, like writing the article, if if you're like this or not, but for me, I get very fixated on certain things. I like it's sort of like a an, an obsessiveness, and no, totally. I just got like really fixated on this issue, and I had to get it off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> so, like writing the article, I literally spent probably three or four months where like. You know, after everybody in my house went to sleep, uh-huh. I would stay up for another like two or three hours, just oh like God. obsessively trying to like get this all figured out. <laughs> and, um, so I like I honestly just did it for myself. Um, like well, I just needed to like reason. figure this out and sort it out in yeah. my head. Yeah. Well, you can tell. I mean, it's you know, it's obviously a very intellectual article, but it's a very interesting you know take on it that I certainly hadn't seen before. And obviously, you know, the journal publishers thought so too. So you know, kudos to you. Thank um, you. I mean, it's it's also it, I'm lucky because this area of law with breach notification laws, um, yeah. it's it's not an area that gets explored in any great detail in uh, published opinions or anything like that. Right. The most we ever hear about is is sort of, was there an obligation to notify in some right. data breach litigation? But there's sure. so many aspects of these statutes that are so odd and puzzling. And, and frankly, we're probably never going to get uh, any meaningful guidance from 
um, the judiciary or from legislators or, or anything like that. Uh, it's just going to be something that we have to sort of live with. There's so many odd things about these statutes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, especially, you know, each state has its peculiarities. But I predict that one day a judge is going to lift from your opinion. So <laughs> here's to that. <laughs> <laughs> that, would really, that would really just make my life, honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, taking a step back, I know when we were chatting the other day, you mentioned that you had actually started down this path into cybersecurity in kind of a, a roundabout way. And you started off as an energy lawyer. Was that, was that right? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, so when I came out of um, law school, mm-hmm. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I, I went to law school thinking that I was going to be an intellectual property lawyer because uh-huh. the whole Napster thing was going oh, on. And yeah. I thought it was very interesting. So I got to law school and I did not take a single intellectual property case uh, oh. <laughs> class. Um, it just it, it it stopped seeming interesting to me when I got there. Right. Um, and there's right. so many different topics that you can obsess over. My favorite class in law school ended up being secured transactions. Oh my god! Um, yeah, and <laughs> I, I think the reason that I loved it so much is because I had a really you know magical professor for that um. class who also started off the class by analogizing secure transactions to the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I like was, that. <laughs> which was a play I acted in in high school. So oh. I was like, oh, I like this. <laughs> I just yeah. knew you had a drama background. <laughs> yeah, oh, I did. <laughs> yeah, I was Shylock. I was Shylock. You were Shylock. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> Talk about playing to type. <laughs> I'm I kidding. Know. I'm they, kidding. They got the one Jewish kid at the school. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh. Um, but so, like, then I, so then I, you know, I, I got a, a summer associate position at, at a firm, and I, you know, they, they rotated us through all these different mm-hmm. groups, and none of them seemed particularly appealing to me. It was like, you know, real estate investment trusts and like, mm. you know, stuff like that. Real mm. estate law, um, really none of it um, spoke to me. And then I, I sort of just knew that there was this practice group where I liked the people a lot and they practiced this energy law. So it hadn't been my intention to get into energy law, but I just, I knew I liked the people on the team a lot and I wanted to to work with them. Uh, And it was a great call. So I got into, I got onto the team. I started doing state regulatory work and then uh, federal energy, energy regulatory work under FERC. And very quickly, I got assigned to um, work with energy companies on uh, complying with these uh, reliability regulations, mm. which are um, set up by a regular, a quasi regulator called NERC, the North American Electric <laughs> Reliability Corporation. Yeah. So <laughs> I love it. there was a good two year period where everyone, mm. when someone would ask me what I do, I'd say, oh, I'm a FERC NERC lawyer. <laughs> 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 and they would just look at me kind of with this, like, this what puzzled are you look. Talking about? <laughs> Like, what are you, Dr. Seuss? Right. <laughs> uh, but one of, one of the NERC regulations is for cybersecurity, and it's actually uh, a very detailed cybersecurity uh, regulation. They were ahead of the curve, I guess. They were. And I mean, it makes sense because we're talking about uh, critical infrastructure here. Right. Um, right. But they were, for instance, ahead, as I understand it, of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, so... I ended up getting assigned to this client of ours, which was a very large electric uh, utility. And basically, I, I became their sort of go-to associate for cybersecurity compliance. And I, I, that's how I learned all this stuff. I, um, I had to fly out there all the time and, and be with them and be with their 
uh, cyber team. And they were, uh, while I was working on their account, they were subject to two, um, NERC audits, which are incredibly intense. Um, they're, they're like two weeks long each and they take oh you know months of preparation. So I got to really understand the, the ins and outs of their, um, compliance, uh, program and, and how they, met all these cybersecurity obligations. And it's basically how I learned to talk shop because I spent so much time pestering the cyber team <laughs> and learning it's usually how, to how be, it happens <laughs> yeah, and learning how to be a sort of translator, uh, between the, the corporate legal folks and, and the people, um, in, in the trenches, as I like to call it, um, sure. uh, being able to speak both languages and being able to sort of understand what each group was interested in, because obviously uh, in, in many cases they're not fully aligned. Um, right. So that was just really eye opening. And that's how I basically decided I, I, what I really was passionate about was um, being a cyber lawyer. Ah, yeah. Well, that was a good call, Jason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that and the fact that FERC law is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no offense intended. <laughs> no, 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 there was a perkler. I'm sorry. I, like, you probably know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> I mean, most of, a lot of the stuff people. is about like is about like rates and how rates are structured okay, and like rate yes. recovery and like you know stuff like that. <laughs> Maybe if you're a math person, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's great. I feel like in law, a lot of times it is kind of fortuitous. I mean, that's the great thing about being a lawyer is your career can go through so many twists and turns and you end up somehow 10 years down the road doing something totally different than you ever pictured. And I think that's the, a great part about, you know, being able to practice. Absolutely. It absolutely is. I mean, I could never have predicted that I would end up with the area of specialization that I now have. I could never have. In spite of that, um, it's such fulfilling work and um, it's so exciting. I mean, it's great to to work on something that I'm intellectually very passionate about and very curious about. And and even this article that I wrote um, that we were talking about is, you know, it's the product of having spent so much time reading like Ars Technica articles, reading articles, but I have this really good friend who I went to college with, Andy Greenberg, and he, he's a writer for Wired and he writes oh, cool. the most interesting stories. Like he wrote about being in a Jeep that was hacked. Oh, and, um, scary. and so he like, you know, was hitting the brakes and the brakes didn't work and it led to like, you know, congressional hearings and stuff like that. I mean, oh it, it's such an it, technology is so fundamental to our lives that, Um, you know, exploring what white hat and black hat and gray hat hackers are capable of fedora um, hat hackers, fedora. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's actually a build of Linux. (laughs) (laughs) That explains a lot. (laughs) But I mean, they really like soon, like our lives are going to be so vulnerable in a sense to what these people can do. Um, and, uh, it's just fascinating to me, the idea. Yeah. Um, and, and, and with password hashes in particular, I mean, I was so interested in the articles I was reading starting in like 2012 on Ars Technica that, you know, long before I ever wrote the article, I had like downloaded Hashcat onto my computer and was trying to figure out, understand how to crack passwords and, you know, see what my own computer could do just a sort of standard computer. And I just thought it's just such fascinating stuff. I read the book Crypto. Uh, about you know like the history of cryptography and oh. you know it's just great to be able to 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 apply uh, in my daily life yeah uh, pro- daily professional life yeah these absolutely. things that I feel so 
intellectually passionate about. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, uh, this area of cyber, I mean, I would say, especially, you know, with law firms and, and, and cyber firms, I mean, it's certainly growing, but it's definitely a, a small kind of intimate field, I would say, you know, I, I feel like after being in, in, in it for about three and a half years, I probably know, you know, half the lawyers that, <laughs> that work on these matters. Which I find yeah. Funny. I think especially in your position, you would, you would have a lot of be interfacing with many of them or in your former position, you would be interfacing with many of them. Yeah. It's definitely a growing practice area. It's something that almost every firm has now, every big firm has now, but it's not necessarily, I mean, something that's something that's very unique about Zuljan in particular, I find is that like we are very, we're very close to the, the gray areas. Like a lot of our clients are sort of not there. There's not any law or regulation that applies in a particular use case. And hmm. it's, it's sort of like an, an, an opportunity to sort of just find out to, to ask us like, you know, like, what would you do here? What, what's your advice? You know, how right. would you manage risk? And it's, right. it, it requires that we have a sort of level of, uh, of familiarity with mm-hmm. just like the, the, the policy space with the, the legal environment, with the, the technology itself and things like that. It's, it's, um, so I think we're kind of in a, in a, in a unique uh, position in that sense. Uh, of course, you know, we also do the very standard stuff of like, privacy policies in terms right. of services and data breaches and stuff like that. But, well, you have to have um, it, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're a company, you don't, I mean, God, you know, under the GDPR, if you don't have a privacy policy, you might as well, you know, hang up shop, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> you might as well stop directing your services towards the European Union. Yes. Yes. That too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I remember when we were chatting, you know, while you're doing all this uh, heavy intellectual heavy lifting, I hear that you like to um, not only listen to um, uh, movie scores, but you also like to listen to death metal. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I have, um, uh, you know, I, I don't. I, I think I might have the most diverse sense of musical taste of anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's just, um, like the sheer breadth of what I like to listen mm-hmm. to. I like while I'm working, I listen to, um, like I have this play work called working that I've been working on for a very long time that has a lot of movie score songs from like Pixar movies Ooh. and, um, and just instrumental music that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, very pleasant because I can't, uh, really concentrate on work, uh, in, in some cases if, to, if there's lyrics or if it's like very catchy, because mm-hmm. I'm also a bit musical. Like I, uh, used to be in an acapella group and stuff like that. So it just catches my attention and oh. I want to sing along and hum. And Can stuff you sing like a bar? <laughs> <laughs> you have to get me uh get me a drink before I do that. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, that's the perfect uh transition to the my favorite question for everybody is uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you have any stories relating to the bar? The the bar exam. Well, it could be drinking, it could be the bar exam. You know. I've got plenty of stories about drinking. Oh. Um uh 
the bar exam, I mean, we talked about this, but the, the only really notable thing about my bar exam mm-hmm. experience, well, the one in Virginia anyway, was was that uh, at the time, and I'm not sure if it's still the case or not, I haven't really followed closely, but um, they, you know, Virginia, like, they always insist on doing things their own way. Of course. You know, they, uh, they, uh, Virginia, I think, is probably the hardest bar exam in the country because they have their own rule for everything. Like, they, mm. they follow the, minor, the minority rule whenever possible. They have their own kind of civil procedure and their own name for everything. Wow. Um, and they, and, and, you know, consistent with that, they made, uh, everyone wear suits. The women had to wear skirts to sit the bar. I would have um, protested. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> but you also had to wear software, soft soled shoes. So you saw a lot of people wearing suits, but like in slippers or like oh sneakers. It's very, very <laughs> odd. I hope they've stopped doing that. I um, hope so too. <laughs> if they have a note to Virginia. <laughs> yeah, I hope they have. Enough is enough. <laughs> yeah. In terms of, in terms of uh, bars, mm. we also talked about how I had, I, my favorite bar is no longer open oh. uh, in Washington, D.C. I've lived here um, since 2011, and mm. I very quickly fell in love with this bar called Angles, which was in Adams Morgan. Mm. And the reason I loved um, Angles so much is because it was I always if when when I was telling people about it I would compare it to the um, the house in Harry Potter that they hide out in where, where Sirius Black used to live, which you can't know if if you haven't been invited to the house you can't see it from the outside, no. um, and so so this bar was in the you know in, in Adams Morgan which was <laughs> like you know like a kind of very very busy um, young person area sure. on a Saturday night but. This um, bar angles was always empty. Uh, you could go in there. There would be like five people. They had board games, a jukebox Ooh. that you could take over. Uh, you could always sit down. It was quiet because you could always hear uh, each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just it a fireplace. It was so great. Um, I would go in there. I would put like $20 into the jukebox and put on like all Steely Dan. <laughs> Everybody else probably hated you. <laughs> Steely Dan. I mean, you mentioned my musical taste. Steely Dan is like my favorite band ever. Oh, I yeah. love that. Actually, I love um, Steely Dan too. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well, my parents, you know, I grew up with my parents are kind of, you know, they were hippies. So I grew uh-huh. up with all that, you know, the 60s and 70s music. I mean, Sade, Steely Dan, you know, all the, well, I mean, God knows what else we listen to, but... <laughs> Good stuff. Good oh stuff. yeah, oh yeah. You know, I I I also like uh, a lot of different kinds of music, and starting with the fact that I I, I played the oboe for many years. So, oh, I, I love the oboe. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> it's a I great do. History. I have. I actually was so into the oboe that I went out and put together a playlist of all oboe no. classical music. Oh my um, god! I found <laughs> like these oboe oboe concertos by uh, Bach, I believe. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're great. I just love the oboe. I love the description of it that it was like if if a duck could sing, that's what it would sound like. <laughs> oh yes, that that was my introduction to the oboe. Was everybody went around, you know, in fourth grade, kidding me? It was like you sound like a duck, you know. Like, oh. <laughs> well, I did. I think it <laughs> it all goes back to Peter and the Wolf. I think. Yes, yes, it does. It does. I think that's the wonderful. The David Bowie recording is that the one you that oh, you listened to? Well, that's not the one I heard in fourth grade, but. <laughs> mm. I just remember, I still have this memory. I tell people how, you know, they were like, how did you choose that in fourth grade? And we listened to Peter the Wolf, and I think they were talking about it. And I just have this memory of, like, walking down the hallway, 
um, to my music teacher's room thinking solo oboe. I like the way that sounds, you know, <laughs> and I played it for like 15 years. <laughs> wow. That's great. I guess it worked for me. Yeah. And then I went to college and I, you know, that was, that was, that was the end of that, you know, <laughs> dated the violist and then we broke up. So, you know, that was the uh, end of my musical career. You didn't, you didn't get to like the Mozart in the jungle phase of your life. I do watch that. I do watch that. <laughs> Very close to my heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, this has been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk with you, Jason. And, you know, it was so great to talk about your uh, your articles and your music. And you're obviously a very eclectic sort of person. And, and that's wonderful. <laughs> and um, anyway, so do you have any uh, parting words of advice for people who want to get into your area or become a lawyer or simply, you know, don't become a lawyer? Um, well, for people who want to become a lawyer, so I like to be a realist about, about, about it. Um, I think that it is an important consideration that when you come out of law school, you may or may not have a significant amount of debt. So I try to be a realist, realistic um, with people who are considering going about, you know, is this is this something that you're just doing because you feel like it's what you should do or like, you know, you don't know what else to do? Is it something that you really um, are sure that you want to go into and come out of with um a lot of, of debt because it's, right. it's, it, it really can be a significant amount. And I was very lucky. Um, I went to William and Mary and I, which is already, you know, it's a very good school, um, academically, but it's, sure. it's very cheap. I mean, if, if, I don't know if there's some like rating of like goodness to cheapness, but it, it would be like very, very high in the list. Um, <laughs> it was very affordable and it, it was still, you know, I came out with a significant amount of, of debt, but yeah. Yeah. It was much cheaper than the other state school in Virginia, um, the University of Virginia, for instance. And I think there are some obvious hmm. reasons for that in terms of the uh, the the big difference in their um, rankings and stuff like that. But oh. and, and I also got this fellowship from them. So I was wow. considered an in-state student from the very in my first year, even though that I had smart. I was coming from New York. Mm -hmm. Um so, you know, it, it was, you know, but I, I have friends who went to much more expensive schools and had, um, a lot, you know, more difficulty finding a job. Uh, the job market was really tight when I, you know, when I got out of law school, um, it was, you know, it was right when the economy crashed. Ooh. Um, and so, you know, I try to be realistic with folks and just say, you know, um, just think it, think, think it through. And, and if it's, and if you get into law school and you get through the first year and you think it's not for me, you know, bow out, it's going to, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're going to have yeah. some debt attached to it, but it's better to have just some debt and pay that off than to have the full debt and then think to yourself, why did I do this? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, and to be honest, like I went to law school, I went to law school, um, because I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I am one of the people who I'm sort of speaking to, right, but right. it worked for me and it worked out for me. And this yeah. kind of actually ties into the other thing that we were going to talk about, which is that, um, you know, like I, I was fortunate enough to sort of fall into what I'm doing, um, yes. this, this cybersecurity practice, but I, I'm not convinced that it would be possible to do that, uh, at any yeah. Um, yeah. because there, you know, there are programs at law schools now where kids already know that this is what they want to practice. 
Um, and, and they are, you know, they are getting the experience and, um, you know, committing themselves to it before they've even graduated. And so, you know, like I wouldn't have been able to get into the position I'm in now when I would be competing against people who had already gotten some sort of like certification or some, um, concentration in, in cybersecurity. Um, so that's another thing that I would, that I tell people is, you know, of course you can always like change the path that you're on once, once you're a practicing lawyer, but it's more difficult, um, to do now than it was when I started out. And, um, so to the, in the sense, to the extent that you have a passion for this particular area of law, um, it's great to, to get that experience as early as possible. You know, interns, a lot of the law schools around, uh, DC have opportunities to do internships with, you know, like the FTC or, or other, um, agencies, um, to just get hands-on experience or some, some, you know, a lot of people go out to Silicon Valley and do internships at, um, the exciting tech companies out there. Right. So getting that experience, um, early and often is seems yeah. to be, um, the best way to get into to my particular field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause now they're looking for people with, you know, five to eight to 10 years. And yeah, like we were saying, I mean, the only people who had that, you know, three or four years ago were people who worked at telecoms, you know, and, yeah. and everybody else just kind of fell into the area, you know, including me. And mm-hmm. agreed, you know, you should, you should, if you know, you should go for it. If you don't, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll find something. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm still, I'm still hopeful that everyone can find what's right for them. Exactly. Um, but I do wish that, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's a little bit regretful that, that people can't just fall into this line of work like I did. Cause yeah. I feel very lucky in that sense, you yeah. know, like I wasn't, it was never my plan. And yet at the same time, I found, um, a particular concentration that makes me very happy. So I wish, uh, I wish that for everyone else too. Oh, me too. And I'm glad you did. And I'm, I'm glad that, um, that, uh, we were able to, uh, to get in touch. So, um, yeah. And you know what? It's so funny too, because like the way that I negotiate contracts, I am, you know, I'm sure that there are people who are just very aggressive and oh, totally. push for, push for <laughs> whatever, you know, push for their position and yeah. ha- without any sense of realism or, you know, what's what the other party needs. But yeah. it's, it was, you know, I feel like we ended up, um, becoming friends because of the fact that our negotiation was like very respectful in tone and we civilized. figured out we figured out the provisions <laughs> that we disagreed over in a yeah. very civilized manner i mean yeah. yeah that's the way it should be that's right that's right so uh, a call to a call to uh, earlier civility for lawyers you know <laughs> yeah it's still being yeah. practiced <laughs> that's you know that's my contracting philosophy too is like yeah. when I, i'm not gonna i don't like to propose provisions or edits that I don't think are realistic. So like when I propose edits, I'm trying to take into consideration what I expect the response to be. Um, and that's, you know, that's just the way I am. That's the dream. That's the dream. (laughs) (laughs) If only everyone could be like you, Jason. (laughs) My wife always says, (laughs) your wife is a very wise woman. (laughs) Well, with that, I know it's getting late. So, Jason, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on tonight. And that's a wrap. You can always check us out at enteringthebar.com. As a reminder, all opinions on this show are made in our personal capacity and don't reflect the views of our employers. 
Many thanks to those who have provided use of their work through the Creative Commons licenses. This episode has featured No Peddler Song, Ruthini and Kolmaja, from their album Corn Smugglers, and sounds from freesound.org with thanks to users Escort Marius, B.H. Weber, and Leander Stat and Tunis. You've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash.